The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, hey, it's GMAC for the Start On Demand on behalf of Lauren McNabb and a vacationing Brett McGarry. Thanks for downloading, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. Western Manitoba, the epicenter of our two top stories today. We'll travel there several times and discuss what's going on with COVID-19 numbers and, of course, the tragic tornado that claimed two young lives, two people from Melita, just south of Verdun. That and much else. We'll talk about the National Hockey League and the Winnipeg Jets. Will they get the first overall pick in the National Hockey League 2020 entry draft? We'll find out at 5 p.m. today. Let's get right down to business. the start for a Monday morning and it's a fresh start for Loren McNabb and Greg Mackling together in the same room for the first time since March 19th, Loren. Yeah, I, we were doing the math this morning and I thought, I can't believe it's been five, almost five months since I've, I've seen your uh, your pretty face. Oh, now, 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 now. Flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, <laughs> right back at you. And uh, this was uh, quite the adventure already this morning, Loren, <laughs> in terms of setting this all up. So uh, Brett McGarry's on holidays right. this week and uh, Brett's our pilot around here. And uh, he was so kind to put together a tutorial video for us before he left for his golf vacation. And uh, without it, I think think we'd be L-O-S-T. Well, because not only is this first time you and I have been in studio together, uh, albeit behind a plexi, what is this, plexiglass? What is some It sort is of rock glass. Rock behind rock. Unbreakablewindows.com. <laughs> rock glass, thank you. And uh, with our distance, but it's our first time in this new studio downtown. And so just a few minutes ago for our listeners, I couldn't even figure out how to hear audio, let alone get my mic on. And I was like, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble because I can't even get... Uh, I can't even hear what's happening. So listen, have some patience with us this morning. Brett's not here. As Greg said, he is our our quarterback, our pilot. He flies the ship and uh, we're happy to be his first mates. What would it be? Is that ship? Now I'm, now I'm using a ship analogy. I yeah, think. I don't know any of the ship analogies. Uh, port and starboard are, are difficult well, enough. So. Either way, here we are. We're, we're going to give it a shot and hopefully it'll... It'll work for us. High above Winnipeg at Portage in Maine, our first sunrise as the sun starts to come up over the city of Winnipeg. And yesterday, Loren, Dr. Brent Rusin with the COVID-19 update. I know when it came across my Twitter timeline and into my email inbox, I thought, oh boy, that can't be good on a Sunday. On a week when Dr. Rusin was already supposed to be on holidays and had been called in, I think it was Wednesday, to do an update when he wasn't supposed to otherwise do. So another spike in numbers. And uh, I guess the question for a lot of Manitobans, is there consolation in the fact that these numbers seem to be in clusters? I uh, I don't know. I think it depends on where you're at, because speaking for the Brandon cluster, for example, and, and the fact that there might be some outliers there, a handful of cases that aren't linked to that cluster. There are some more questions. And I do know that in many of these communities, I don't want to speak for Brandon, but in some of the smaller outlying towns, you were worried about COVID, but perhaps not as much as you were if you were in Winnipeg, because in the beginning, most of the cases were in 
the Winnipeg Health region. And so it appears that, you know, that that's kind of moved outside uh, the capital city and into other spots. And so I think it kind of depends on where you're at this morning, where you're living and how you're feeling, because we've heard from a couple of listeners in the Brandon area that's, you know, they're, they're seeing more bare shelves when it comes to things like toilet paper or hand sanitizer and that kind of stuff. And that's what we went through, say, at the beginning. And so it kind of feels like it's having this ebb and flow. And I now feel like we're at this stage where in the beginning, when he held a news conference, I listened every single day, even if it was at one o'clock, right? And I would make sure I was watching my emails and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And now I kind of went away from that a bit because they went away from doing those daily briefings. Right. And then yesterday I'm, I'm driving back from a friend's place and I had learned that there was going to be this one o'clock newser and I was back on CGOB at 1 p.m. And so now it's become that, that thing again for me. Well, we'll talk to uh, Cynthia Carr, epidemiologist. We'll go through the numbers and some of the things that we should be concerned about, maybe some that we shouldn't. I know a lot of people bringing into account and into play this idea that Manitoba accounted for 20% of the total new cases in Canada yesterday with uh, just 3% of the population. Is that game something we should be doing? Is there math that we should be looking at, math that we shouldn't be in terms of making ourselves feel better or worse about the situation, depending on how you're approaching it? Uh, We'll also talk math with regard to the National Hockey League. One winner tonight of the eight teams, of course, they're a disappointment for the Winnipeg Jets, Edmonton Oilers, Toronto Maple Leafs, Pittsburgh Penguins, and four other teams who did not make it out of the play-in round into the playoffs. The Maple Leafs were the last team eliminated last night in the fifth game against Columbus, but now each one of those eight teams has a 12.5% chance of getting the first overall draft pick in the upcoming NHL entry draft. So we'll work through some of those numbers and maybe even talk about throughout the morning. Who don't you want to get it? If you want the Jets to get it, uh, who's your second choice to get it? Anybody but, for a lot of people, it's Pittsburgh mm-hmm. for because they got Sidney Crosby in the last situation where there was a quote-unquote generational player up for grabs the way this uh, draft pick is. The Oilers have had, uh, I think it's four or five first over draft picks in the last decade or so. And, of course, uh, Toronto just got Austin Matthews first overall uh, five drafts ago. So uh, is it time for the Jets to, to finally get a first overall draft pick? Lots of conversation uh, to take place around what happens around 4 o'clock uh, our time this evening. And I will say this. That'll be about the only addition to hockey in my life for the next few weeks because right. uh, I was just laughing last night. So I was telling our listeners, I've got a Pittsburgh fan in the house. Well, mm-hmm. they're out. I've got a Leafs fan in the house. They're out as of last night. And of course, my husband and I are Jets fans. So they'll be. it was a short-lived uh, mm, season for us when it comes to watching. But I am curious to see where we'll land with uh, a possible key player if the draft goes our way. Alex Lafreniere, uh, he's the consensus number one pick. And uh, the Ottawa Senators also have the third and fifth, I believe, overall pick. Some people saying, well, then... Maybe the Jets, if they get it, should trade those picks. Anyway, Murat Atesh from The Athletic will join us on that. And we will also announce our winner of the Sleepless in Winnipeg contest, which you qualified for all last week. We have a large two-topping Santa Lucia pizza to give away at 837. And we'll uh, continue this first half hour of the week. Bizarre weather, of course. It's it's bone dry in a lot of parts of the province. But, Loren, some tragic weather in western Manitoba over the weekend. tornado that swept through the verdant area unbelievable pictures and of course incredible loss for one community that's uh, mourning the tragic death of two people that are from the small town of Melita. we'll have more on who they were and and what happened friday night 
Mackling and Loren McNabb with you on this Monday morning. Brett McGarry will be back next week. Brett, hope you enjoy your week away. I hope he's not up listening is what I really hope. Oh, no, I I, I know where he is, and he's quite far west. In fact, uh, that's right. I would think that he's uh, teeing off at some point today. He had big golf plans this big, week. Big, big golf, golf plans. Golf and tubing. Oh, yeah. I didn't mm. oh, I didn't know there was a boat involved. No, like um, tubing down the river, I oh, think. Nice. Like one of those lazy river type mm. situations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was out past uh, Beauxager this weekend where one of the places where you can sort of jump in the water and lays in a mm-hmm. tube and uh, busy as can be. It was, uh, it was a nice weekend weather-wise, but of course in western Manitoba, the weather turned tragic. We'll talk about that as we make our way throughout the morning and at 8.07. We'll, we'll tell you, what should you do? If you're in a vehicle and a tornado warning strikes or you see one in your rear view mirror or, you, or you're approaching one, what should you do? Instincts would be, Loren, I think for a lot of people to try and outrun it. But, uh, you know, we're not going to hold back this information uh, so that you'll stick around till eight o'clock. What you're supposed to do is get out of your vehicle and find a low lying area. Get to the lowest part, lay as flat as you can on the ground and uh, hope for the best. And I, I think that that is a message I've heard for years and every time I hear it I I honestly think yeah right you know as if I'm going to be the one that gets out of my car because the car feels like the safest place and in some ways it's counterintuitive because if it's a thunderstorm that preceded that with lightning the car is one of the more safer places to be and so it's it's uh to find yourself in that scenario I can't imagine but I think there's some important information to be shared so we'll have Environment Canada join us after eight with that uh of course uh we've got our contest to give away our winner from last week's contest with all our great conversations we had about sleep and weirdest places you've had to fall asleep and most (laughs) embarrassing places you've fallen asleep we've we've selected our winner we're going to be giving you a shout after 7 30 so if you qualified last week if you qualified be by the phone just after 7 37 and we'll also give away a large two topping pizza from santa lucia but to start this half hour 51. That's how many new COVID-19 cases Manitoba saw over the weekend. 16 Saturday and 35 yesterday. So, of course, that total had Dr. Brent Rusin back at the table for a briefing yesterday. Those weekend updates, they were the norm for many months. But earlier this summer, when the cases started to taper off, and I think we had a good two weeks there where there were none at all, the province scaled back on those daily news conferences and were only doing them maybe once or twice a week and not on the weekends. Then last weekend, we saw that spike and there was some flack or feedback, Greg, about the idea that, wait, we saw the spike, but we didn't get a lot of information because that fell over the long weekend. And then, of course, Dr. Rusin was supposed to be on vacation. He shared that with us last week. He was supposed to be on vacation, barely had a few days off before he was back at the legislature Thursday, Friday, and then again yesterday to share the news of 35 new cases Sunday. Uh, I'm aware Manitobans are concerned especially as uh, our reopening plans continue and we try to get back to um, living with this virus. Uh, Many Manitobans are very anxious at this time and that is to be expected, Uh, but we can recall that we've been here before and we've never have been helpless against this virus. Uh, We have concrete steps that we can take to reduce our risk and we've Uh, done them and most of us have continued to do them uh, as the time goes on but we uh, should make sure we get back to our focus on those fundamentals. Uh, Staying home if you feel ill, even mildly unwell. Practice good and frequent hand hygiene. Do not share items with others. Practice physical distancing when you're uh, outside of your household. 
Those messages aren't new, but what is changing, Loren, is the information the province is providing about new cases. To date, the province is typically only given ages and then the health region the person lives in. But Dr. Rusin says that's going to change. We are working to be able to provide information that is broken down by health districts. Health districts are administrative zones within each regional health authority. This will allow us to break down case numbers in more detail uh, while continuing to ensure the privacy of match omens. We expect that this more detailed data will be available later this week on the COVID-19 dashboard at matoba.ca slash COVID-19. So it's not clear what new detail might come with that change. As Dr. Rusin said, more is coming later this week. But we do know most of the cases reported over the weekend are linked to spikes seen in the Southern Health region, which includes Steinbeck and, of course, Brandon. Dr. Rusin says a small number of cases in Brandon don't appear to have a link to a main cluster in the Wheat City, meaning there could be some community spread. Uh, when we talk about these uh, uh, community-based uh, transmission or what we might term as non-epi-linked uh, cases, uh, a lot of times uh, it's early in the investigation, so we just have yet to link them to a known case or to a cluster or to travel. Uh, so uh, often the, the numbers that we report for that uh, on Friday, the, the seven-day was, was 14. Often that can be an overestimation because we've just not had a chance to link them yet to that. Uh, but when we see cases that are, are linked to clusters or to known cases, uh, that means these are individuals who are, have already been self-isolating. Uh, so they're unlikely to have significant contacts. The significance of a community-based transmission uh, or acquisition is that those individuals uh, have not been self-isolating. Um, so, uh, so they could potentially have many contacts. So we have a couple questions around this this morning, Greg, about the idea about the spread and, and the Brandon area in particular. How are you feeling if you're in those communities in terms of seeing that spike in cases? Do you feel better when you hear there's less here in Winnipeg? You know, depending on where you live, mm-hmm. that's part of the equation. And then one of the things that they talked about was this idea they want to give us more information. And so the only reason we really know there's that cluster in Brandon started with the idea that Maple Leaf and the union with Maple Leaf Plant pointed out in a union statement last week that there's this, been this outbreak there and then that got the questions being asked about the spe- specific nature of that outbreak. Otherwise, we might not know. You know, if it, it's, The information we often have comes from the businesses as opposed to the province because the province is balancing that whole privacy conversation and not wanting to disclose too much. And so when they say they're going to now start to give the districts within a within a region, does that help you? Is that the kind of information you're looking for? Do you want to know that the town even, is that bigger to you? And then on the flip side, he said from the beginning, we should be acting like it's in your community at all times. That's how you should be behaving. And so I'm kind of torn in terms of how I feel in terms of the communication and what they should be sharing. But again, when it comes to that Brandon area, we know that 18 cases are now at that plant. Again, that came from the union. The union's still pushing for calls to temporarily close that plant until this outbreak is, in their words, under control. That's not going to happen at this point as far as we understand. We've asked both the union and Maple Leaf to come on. But in the meantime, what kind of information would help 
with this conversation for you? Yeah, I think uh, the question has to be, is that information being disseminated because it makes the larger population more comfortable or is there some other value in delivering that information? I think that's one of the questions that, that we should have for Dr. Roos. And why are you changing this mode of delivering the information? Is it is it because you want to make people feel better, give them some sense of control over the situation? Because we have, we have only several things that we can do to limit the spread. And also, is this just a question of demand from the public for more information? He talked yesterday about the balancing both, right? That they want to give some information, but they also, as in his words, have heard from Manitobans who said, can't we get a little bit more? We have a listener just now texting in to say, I think it would be less frightening to the public if Dr. Rusin would say, how many people tested positive, but what were their symptoms? You know, is it all mild cases mm. of the 30 active ones or 40 active ones or whatever the number is? And more importantly, this person would like to hear about the people who are in intensive care. Was there an underlying health condition that led to the intensive care? Or are we now seeing cases where people who are perfectly healthy are landing themselves in hospital? Mackling and McNabb, McGarry's on holidays, Jeff Braun, Jeffrey Forche, and Kelly Moore joins us now. And Kelly, I just got a text message from one of our most loyal listeners, uh, Chuck LaFleche, and he says your pronunciation of the gentleman who is the consensus number one overall pick in the National Hockey League entry draft is perfect. Oh, all right. I thought he was. Uh, I thought Chuck was going to say go back to French classes. <laughs> so <laughs> can you do it, Lafreniere? Hey? Yeah, do it, do it, do it, do it. Alexi Lafreniere. Very good. Well done, Kelly Morris. So to uh, to get a compliment like that from a from a, a, a francophone Manitoban is uh, something you should uh, you should take pride in. How are things going, man? I, I'm seeing Lorenz's face for the first time in five months. I don't know the last time I saw your mug, but. If I were to see you on a reality TV show, which might be the next best opportunity for me to see you, quote unquote, uh, which which uh, reality show would it be, Cal? Well, I'll tell you what, if I was going to have a spot on the train wrecks, uh, it would be American Idol. But I think the one that I would really like to take a whack at would be The Amazing Race. And I think the the person I'd like to do that with would be Tim Campbell, uh, formerly of the Winnipeg Free mm-hmm. Press, now with NHL.com. Tim and I traveled together for years, and I think our skill sets would, would mesh very well. I don't know if he'd want to do it with me, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I'd love to give the uh, Amazing Race a, a whirl. I just think that is such a cool format. I just want to jump in here, Kelly, because that would have been that is my pick, too, for the reality show. I'd like to give have a crack at and we're talking about this for having coffee this morning because of course american idols on its search for singers for its next season big brothers underway and uh we wanted to ask everybody what reality show would you like to take part in and the thing that's funny about amazing race is when people say they'd like to be on that show just like you did kelly not only do they say they want to be on that show they know who they'd like to do it with or maybe or more importantly who they would not want to do it with (laughs) yeah i was just gonna say mcnab how long do you think you and i would last i'd kill you you'd kill me but i feel like kelly that's what you want you need that blend of organized (laughs) structure you'd be like loran the train's leaving we gotta get to the train and i'd you know i'd be in the corner finding the last hidden clue for something i feel like kelly you're not giving me a shot here (laughs) 
<laughs> now, see, I would pay. That would be pay for view television for me to see Kelly and Loren and the Amazing Race. What about you, Braun? Because the Amazing Race for me, the one thing that puts it off the list, I think, is the the funky things that they sometimes make you eat and that. What would what would uh, what would attract you to to which show? I'm also uh, for the Amazing Race, and I would like to say Survivor because that is my favorite reality show to watch. But the downside of that show is just too much. The starvation and the bugs and the, the they, they make weird stuff on that show too. Plus, I, I know I'd be the guy that got kicked out first and that would be too hard to live down. So I'm, I'm also on board for The Amazing Race, but I don't know who I would go with. I would love to go with my girlfriend, but neither one of us are really good at sort of navigation in the moment as every time we get in the car and try to go somewhere new, we end up having to... We missed the turn three times before we get there kind of thing. So uh, that would be a tough one, too. I don't know. Maybe Big Brother's the one for me because that's kind of, you know, just sitting on a couch all summer. I've done that many times. (laughs) You're doing it right now. Do you think you'd fly under the radar a little bit, uh, Braun, in in the Big Brother house? That's the thing. I think it's hard to tell if I like my alone time and that seems hard to come by there. I think I would get too irritated too fast by the other house guests and uh, probably blow up at the wrong spot. That would be my undoing, I think. <laughs> Adam said that he would love to compete in Survivor. He would even be willing to do a Survivor Alaska. Problem was with that, uh, only no one would uh, be walking around in bikinis. So mm. I think that's why they've not done a Survivor in a colder climb. Jeff Braun is because of that, uh, that aspect of the programming, shall we say? That is absolutely why they haven't done it, for sure. That's why they that's why they, they don't even do it in a, you know, room temperature climate. They go to the hottest places they can find, so everyone takes off all their clothes. There we go. Jeffrey Forche, what is the reality program for you and your skill set? Well, it's it's not on TV anymore, but uh, I would like to be on the Osbournes. Oh. It would just be fun, you know? <laughs> like, but that's not a contestant. You just want to show up as a friend of, like, Kelly or whatever hey, the still, name still is. Reality. Is a mailman or something? Why not? <laughs> Sharon, Sharon. It'd be fun, but but besides that, maybe Impractical Jokers. Have you guys ever seen that show? Yes. Yeah, that one's pretty good. They're behind the scenes. Four best friends. Yeah. uh, Well, you describe it, Forche. They're four best friends who uh, from high school who kind of uh, what do they do? They 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 don't prank each other. They go into these contests. Yeah, they'll uh, go into different businesses and they'll set up these very elaborate pranks yeah, and uh, set up all sorts of different uh, camera angles. What, what, what was that one uh, that Aston Kutcher did way back in the day on MTV? Punked? Punked, yeah. It's a sort of a punked sort of idea, but they don't do it to famous people. Yeah, well, they wear earpieces and like just strangers and like their friends be like, oh, you got to say this. And- yeah. yeah, and if they don't say it, then they lose the bat, right? Yeah. They have to be willing to do it. There's like all. a humiliation at the end, so it's... Uh- it's funny. The qu- question this morning, what reality show would you like to be on? Listener just now texting, 100% the dating game. Just don't mm. tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, Big John says that he would 100% do, do amazing at Big Brother. I'm pretty good at manipulating others. However, I would love to try alone. Uh, oh, alone. Oh, no, thanks. You know that one? No. You go, like, oh, you're alone. Oh, and is it the one where you're naked in the bush? There's also that. There that, is naked alone. Naked right, alone. Jeff? Naked and afraid. Naked and afraid. 
<laughs> For some reason, I see Jeff Braun in that one. I feel like he'd really. Uh, I think he'd thrive in that one. I think one. he'd thrive. He's got the beard, so he'd be warm. That's a good point. There's a few of us who, I got would, uh, if we one. were naked, people would be afraid. <laughs> in case you missed it, Jeff said he got rejected for that one. We're going to talk about COVID-19. The province's top doctor confirmed 35 new cases of COVID-19 in Manitoba yesterday. Dr. Brent Rusin held the rare Sunday press conference amid a recent spike in COVID-19 cases in our province, including 16 new infections on Saturday. And while many of the cases over the weekend, and the math is 51 is the total over the weekend, while they appear to be known clusters in the Southern Health region or the city of Brandon or our close contacts of a previously announced case, the province did say that there might be a small number of cases of unknown acquisition. So that would be getting back to the conversation about community-based transmission. But they're still investigating those cases and they haven't clearly defined what might be happening or what might be at play there. So, of course, we've been leaning a lot on Cynthia Carr, Cynthia Carr, an epidemiologist and founder of Epi Research throughout the past five months. And she joins us again this morning. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. So, as we said, 51 new cases, numbers really not seen in this province in months. And I believe if if we read the numbers right, too, it's the most active cases that we've had throughout this pandemic. Can you help? Put these into perspective for those who might be feeling that anxiety when they hear those high numbers again? Right. So so for us, those are high numbers. Um, in fact, Friday to Sunday, we had uh, 68 confirmed cases. And then, as you said, uh, around 51 Saturday and Sunday. Um, so those kind of lead to um, concern uh, to look at, as you just said, are some of them community-based spread uh, where we're not sure if there's contacts uh, or what the linkages are. And then, of course, we're seeing uh, what appear to be outbreaks uh, within certain areas of the province, and those are really important to get on top of right now. So, um, yeah, we're used to kind of being on the lower range, um, but we've seen kind of our positive weekly test rates go up from, I did a bit of math last night, and I was looking at Monday, that's Sundays, but uh, from July 20th to 26th, and then 27th to August 2, and August 3 to August 9 are the weeks I was looking at, and we kind of went from 0.7% positive to 0.6% uh, to 1.1%, um, and over the weekend, we accounted for about 7% of cases uh, in Canada, uh, where over the, uh, since the start of this, we've accounted for uh, 0.5%, so it's definitely been a change. Change. Um, but again, when you're dealing with small numbers, you know, an increase of 40, 50, 60, that, you know, that's a, a massive multi- multiplication of change, but hopefully it's outbreaks that uh, we're now back on top of. Cynthia, we've often had the discussion about what are the important numbers to keep an eye on. The mm-hmm. province pledging over the weekend that they're going to change a little bit in terms of the information that they give us. Uh, what information do you think it would be important for them to expand or maybe is it not important at all because a a lot of people clamoring for more information not less what would you like to see well um just you know the broad one is moving towards that positive test rate instead of numbers because that seems to um, be easier to sort of understand how things are changing quickly Um, but I think your question is more about um, balancing privacy and confidentiality uh, versus what uh, community members think they need to know 
so we, you know we have to be very careful about that. I think it's important um, for people to understand uh, again what we need to keep doing and why it's important because we are seeing different uh, cases in in you know more people in younger age groups. So remembering even though in the beginning uh, we talked about older people with vulnerable immune systems across the age groups being at most risk, we never said nobody was at no no risk. And so data around age groups around sort of broadly geographically where people are I think is important uh, just as a reminder and for our own safety but um, we have to be careful I think about getting too close to potentially identifying people uh, because people do deserve their privacy and once you give too sort of granular level of information people could start guessing always at that person I notice that you know they're not coming out of their house or they've been at the doctor something like that it seems maybe not probable, but it, it really does happen. And in dealing with data for 25 years, um, our rule has always been that we never um, present anything anything with a cell size of less than five, partly because those data go up and down so quickly and partly because we uh, want to avoid other community members trying to figure out who it might be. We've had so many of the same reminders over the past few months, Cynthia. And, and again, for our listeners, we're speaking to epidemiologist Cynthia Carr, you know, hand washing, keeping our distance. And for many people, it comes down to the social distancing and work. And a lot of people are in that mode where they might be returning back to work. They were at home for the past five months and their employers might be saying, we want you back at work. Or there might be that push to get people back to work because there is that group of people who um, had no choice but to be at work and therefore don't necessarily like the idea of those get- others getting to stay home. What's your message there for people, you know, who are in jobs that they can still do well at home? Should there be a push to bring them back? Well, um, you know, we're seeing still the uh, virus is absolutely circulating. The way it circulates has not changed. Uh, We know for sure the primary uh, means is face-to-face contact. And we know uh, under uh, closed um, facility is the most likely uh, way. So I think I said this last week to you that of the 1,200 outbreaks I looked at, all but one were related to indoor activity. Um, So we have to remember it wasn't a privilege when we were told to stay home. When the first uh, state of emergency was declared on March 20th, Dr. Rusin clearly stated we must change our day-to-day lives and think about our roles in protecting ourselves and all of Manitobans. But there are some people, Cynthia, that think that, right? You know, you get to stay home. Right. And I don't like that. And there are people who just are in central roles, roles and some are not. And so we maybe should keep that line. Is that the messaging? I, I really believe that. Remember that by putting yourself in a, in a situation that you may not need to be in, you're, you're not showing solidarity with people that have to go back to front to find uh, frontline labor or, or work, um, you could actually be sabotaging the situation. Safety is enhanced the lower community-based spread is. So if you're already effectively working from home, um, I would encourage you to maintain that so that when we go back in stage approaches, uh, we keep the spread low. And remember, if we're looking at schools, there's not a place in the world where this has been uh, effective of reopening schools where, where community-based spread has not been under control. So, Cynthia, so is the message there then to slow down on schools then, Cynthia? The message is that we can't look at that opportunity if we don't have community-based spread under control first. And the way we can do that is if we're working effectively from home, uh, let's try to keep that up as much as possible.
68 COVID-19 cases Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the combined number in our province. Some of those numbers, 18 of them, Loren McNabb, linked to one place in Manitoba. Yeah, the Union for Maple Leaf Foods saying that uh, there were eight additional positive cases at Maple Leaf Brandon over the weekend. So that brings the total amount of known positive cases in that plant up to 18. The union has been calling for several days now to temporarily close that plant and did so again yesterday, saying these new cases, quote, strengthen our call on Maple Leaf Brandon to close for a one-week period until all test results are in and the situation is under control. That's the perspective from the union. Now we want to hear from Maple Leaf themselves. We're joined now by Janet Riley, Vice President of Communications for Maple Leaf Foods. Good morning, Janet. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you've heard this before. You know what the union's asking for, and we've seen this in other meat uh, plants throughout Canada and potentially, you know, other places in the world. Uh, Is there any consideration to close the plant at this point? Well, we take the union's concerns seriously, but the fact is we're the member, we're a member of a community that has a substantial outbreak occurring right now. So it's not surprising that some of our employees are impacted by this. But the important thing to remember is what public health officials are saying, including in a press conference yesterday. There is no evidence of workplace transmission. These cases are being transmitted outside the workplace. In fact, yesterday we called all of our employees, uh, all 2,000. It was an amazing effort. And what they're telling us is that they actually feel safer in our plant given all the protective measures we have and in many places in the community. So as long as we are confident that there is no workplace transmission occurring, we will continue to operate. Janet, uh, the government of Manitoba via uh, Dr. Rusin yesterday, in fact, commended Maple Leaf for what they're doing, going above and beyond the public health measures that, that would be required at this point in time. What are you doing that's above and beyond? Well, every day when employees arrive at our plants, their temperatures are screened, their health is screened. They have to go through a comprehensive questionnaire. We have a team of nurses there conducting this. They have mandatory masks required. We have careful social distancing in the plant, and we have separators between workstations. We've also brought in trailers to decrease the density during break time so we can spread people out when they eat lunch. And we are constantly looking for ways to get better and better. And we really feel confident that the level of safety we're providing is really strong. And we were very gratified that Dr. Roussan recognized that yesterday. There's also business that needs to continue. And so there will be those that say, Janet, that this is about the dollars and cents and not necessarily about COVID or health. You mentioned the idea that your employees feel safe, but there are those who will push back against that because they'll see what other businesses are doing. We know Tim Hortons and Brandon, there was one location that temporarily closed for a deep cleaning. Same goes with some of the other restaurants there. And so there will be that pushback saying, when to temporary closure make sense until we know that there's no more cases inside this facility because indoors is the big concern for people. And that's a good question. And and Dr. Rasan addressed that yesterday. Um, The reason that some businesses have had to close and that public health has talked about them quite openly is because they have contact with the public. We don't have contact with the public. So that's a very different scenario. Um, And I think it's really notable. We had the uh, public health officials and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency in our plant last Thursday. We welcomed them in for an inspection. 
And that's what led them to conclude that we were going above and beyond. Many people don't realize that we can't operate our plant if our Canadian Food Inspection Agency inspectors are not there. They come in every day and we have a team inspecting us. And CFIA feels that our plant is safe enough to send their inspectors in. So that gives us extra confidence. It should give our employees extra confidence. And I hope it will give the public confidence that we are providing a safe workplace. If CFIA decides it's not safe and says they're not sending their inspectors in, well, then we wouldn't be operating. But for now, we're going to continue operating. And our employees seem really committed to continuing to make the food that people need during this, uh, this pandemic. Janet Riley is VP of Communications for Maple Leaf Foods. We're talking about the situation, the Brandon plant. And just want to confirm just from all the information that we have that the spread of this is not happening in the plant. This is something that's happening outside the plant. For a lot of people, there's going to be that perception that it's the other way around. Exactly. Um, and Dr. Rustan has been unequivocal in saying that in press conferences, you know, Friday, Saturday and Sunday over and over. Um, there appear to have been some community events that are linked to the outbreak that's occurring in the city of Brandon. Uh, and sadly, it's impacted uh, some of our team members. The good news is that all of our team members are recovering at home. Our nurses are in touch with them every day. Uh, and we're looking forward to having them return to the plant when it's safe for them. No backlash uh, towards these employees, Janet, uh, that you're aware of within the community? Has the community been supportive of what these employees are, are going through? Uh, I certainly hope so. And uh, yesterday, Dr. Roussan stressed the importance of that and of not discriminating against someone with COVID. Um, so we, we will certainly welcome them back when, when they're fully recovered. Looking at schools, there's not a place in the world where this has been uh, effective of reopening schools where, where community-based spread has not been under control. The message is that we can't look at that opportunity if we don't have community-based spread under control first. And the way we can do that is if we're working effectively from home, uh, let's try to keep that up as much as possible. That's epidemiologist Cynthia Carr. She joined us at the top of the hour in the 7 o'clock hour. We bring her back at 8.49 because uh, what you said there at the end of our conversation, uh, Cynthia, we didn't have as much time as we'd like to to expand upon that. So uh, what jumped out for you there, Loren, with regards to the discussion about school and the numbers as, as we're seeing them? Well, there's two things to talk about, right? People are being brought back to work slowly, and in some cases that's because they have to, and it makes sense to do that. And another cases it might not be necessary and so uh, Cynthia you had talked a bit about that component of the problem because it is at the end of the day if we all have our eyes on September 8th and will or will we not see school return what are we watching for when it comes to how COVID-19 is or is not spreading in our community? Uh, the main thing is um, our uh, you know, our percentage of positive test rates, but also if we look around the world, what the benchmark they're looking at is average numbers of daily cases per million. And some of the countries that have been sort of uh, reopening successfully and what they are. So right now, uh, we know we've had a bit of a blip, but so for the last three weeks, our average number of cases per million has gone from 37 to 29 and then up to 77. Again, 
last week was a blip with some outbreaks, which appear to possibly be related to, you know, an occupational uh, exposure, but that's being investigated. So around the world, um, when Denmark reopened, they were at 35 cases per million, so that's similar to where we were. Uh, Norway was at 17, Japan was at 3.5, Israel was at 14.6. So again, they were sort of um, at the top of the end of successful reopenings is where we have been in the past couple of weeks. So we will want to keep watch of that. The other thing I wanted to note with with successful reopenings, it's not just community-based spread. So, for example, Israel had uh, control of community-based spread. They opened their schools, um, but they moved quickly. They had pods, they had small group uh, learning, but they opened all of the schools at the same time and kind of started to relax those rules about the social distancing and the cohorts, the small groups, which we know would uh, work for reducing exposure amongst kids. And if there was a child that was positive or a teacher, it would make contact tracing easier because you know you've got them in a small group already. So um, even with control of community-based spread, we need to look at some of the other countries like Norway and Denmark where they have not had any school outbreak or increases in community-based spread since uh, reopening schools in April. And what they did is they brought the younger kids back first, waited to see if things remained stable, and then they brought back the older kids. The other thing that we really need to talk about, and I'm really pleased to see this morning, um, further information from the Health Canada, is ventilation in the schools. We do not want situations where air is recirculated. And you know what? Even with the flu in 1918, they were holding classes outside as much as they could. Even back then, they were looking at, let's disperse the potential virus as much as possible with the best ventilation possible. So if it were me, I would be saying to every school, keep your windows open as long as possible, even if you have to spend a little bit more money on the heat, Um, because all of these other things with learning pods and not having kids move from room to room, it's, it's really going to come back to how good is the ventilation, which is the new fresh airflow, and reducing that recirculation of shared air. That's one of the benefits of being where we are in this pandemic on the curve in Manitoba, in my mind, Cynthia, is that we've been able to learn so much from what other jurisdictions have mm-hmm. gone through. And so you highlight that one there. And Loren and I were talking about Israel off off the air and the, the challenge that they're having now with schools reopening. And then the other uh, context that you're sharing with us, I've seen various opinions on this with regard to per capita cases, per capita this, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be cases overall or perhaps uh, uh, the the uh, the rate of transmission, and we're sitting at about one point four five or or positivity uh, rate. So those different uh, calculations are things that we should be keeping an eye on. And per capita is something that you take into account. That's right, and they're all related. Obviously, as the increased positivity rate goes up, the per capita rate will go up. And we also have to look again at, you know, we're a huge country. We're we're a big province. So when we're looking at Europe and talking about differences between countries, and then we try to talk about Canada as a country, you know, we're very different from the smaller countries. So even within Manitoba, um, you know, Dr. Rusin may have to look at where is the lowest risk in terms of community 
community-based spread um, and percentage of positive cases, and maybe there has to be different reopening plans uh, geographically if there are areas where he is concerned. But that doesn't mean that you know, he would want to hold everyone back from going to school if he thinks there's very specific geographic patterns. So again, Health Canada has uh, highlighted some new information about masks as well, recommendations, um, but also about, you know, that circulation and ventilation in the school, which is something that, you know, schools can start looking at right now um, in terms of uh, enhancing safety. We're about a month away for when kids will be going back to school. And so there'll be Mm -hmm. lots to follow in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, Cynthia, when it comes to that number Mm -hmm. that we've been hearing, I think, a lot more of and paying attention more of, at least I know in in some of my circles, is the positivity rate. And so Dr. Brent Rusin has said that if it's he gets 3%, might have to revisit some things, whether the school's part of that remains to be seen. What's 3% have to do with it here? Right now we're at about a 1.45% positivity test rate. That's right. And the World Health Organization says that 5% would be the threshold for saying that you um, have control of community-based spread. And Dr. Rusin is being even more cautious at 3%, uh, which I think is a really good idea because we see how quickly, you know, numbers can escalate. So, uh, again, um, as much as we want to be back to work, back to school, uh, we need to be very cautious of that positive test rate because uh, if 3% of people are testing positive, we know that many people don't have symptoms at all. So that's what we need to rely on in terms of having, um, you know, the best understanding possible of risk right now. Thank you for keeping us up to date on these numbers, the way we should be viewing them. Cynthia, we appreciate your time and doing this twice is, uh, mm-hmm. in one morning is very much appreciated. Have a good day. In Western Manitoba, kind of the epicenter for both of our major stories of the day today. We've been talking about the COVID-19 situation and uh, what a lot of people are discussing and describing as an outbreak of cases over the weekend, 68 since Friday. Dr. Brent Rusin will once again address the province today. Loren will be carrying that conversation and that announcement at one o'clock here on 680 CJOB. Yeah, of course, and and some eyes focused on Western Manitoba for that reason because of what's being referred to as that cluster in Manitoba, but, or Brandon rather, a cluster in Brandon with what he says are a few cases that may, they're not sure of the link there. They're not sure if they're linked to people that they know or travel. And so therefore there might be some community transmission going on there. Still early days for that, but we'll hear more from Dr. Brent Rusin at one. And then of course, Greg, the other part of the story and, and just watched it play out in the national news this morning on Global News Morning is that tornado. Yeah, and that's where we start this hour. Overwhelming grief in Melita this morning where the small western Manitoba town is trying to come to grips with an unimaginable tragedy. A really horrific situation there for so many people who knew them because two teens were killed in that tornado that touched down just north of Melita, south of Verdon Friday night. Eyewitnesses report seeing that several vehicles, at least two, thrown in that twister. In the car of one, of course, a 54-year-old was injured. In the other, the two Melita teens were tossed during the twister and did not survive. Global's Joe Scarpelli traveled to the area just hours after the tornado touched down and joins us now. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. Joe, you not only spoke to people who saw the tornado, um, watched it pass through their yards or farms, but you also then traveled to Melita where these two teens are from and 
one of the lines that stood out for both Greg and I in your story that's being aired on Global News Morning was the idea that you spoke to dozens of people and couldn't find one that wasn't in some way connected to one or other of the teens. And that just speaks to how uh, much this town must be reeling today. Yeah, it was incredible um, to, you know, go around town and literally not a single person I ran into didn't have some kind of connection to either one of the 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 teens or their families it was incredible to see and everybody was was hurting a a lot of people were too distraught understandably to to you know uh, uh, interview with us but uh, a lot of people shared their uh, their grief with us and just told us how hard it is for such a small community a thousand people and uh, they were well-known kids. They were well-liked. And uh, as we heard over and over yesterday, it, it's going to be uh, you know, uh, hitting them hard for quite some time. Give us some geographical context uh, for those that aren't as familiar with Western Manitoba as some of the rest of us might be here. Joe, Melida, and uh, Verdon, just talk about their geographic uh, distance and and uh, where where the the tornado touched down so verdon um from where the tornado touched down south of verdon to uh Melita, it's about it's about a half hour 45 minute drive away um so there there's still um uh some questions around you know um what what the what the the, the two victims were were doing in the area um, and 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 how come they were there? If they were, you know, maybe trying to look for the uh, the, the the storm, if they were visiting friends, or if they were just there for a night out. But it's about a yeah, half hour, forty five minute uh, drive from Verdon, and then uh, where the or south of Verdon, and where that tornado touched down is about uh, say an hour from uh, from the Brandon area. Yeah, southwestern Manitoba, of course, Verdon, west of Brandon, Melita, south of. Uh Verdon and then of course the tornado at, at some spots in between and Joe you know you're right we, we might never know what those what they're doing and where their travels were taking them they weren't that far from home and and uh, lots could be going on in that moment and, and we talked to a tornado expert after eight o'clock just about the idea of how careful you need to be when you are in a car and you're in tornado activity because you really shouldn't be staying in that car but that's easier said than done for so many of us you might never see it coming and you even spoke to eyewitnesses who admitted admitted you talked to one uh, over the weekend who said she saw the tornado pass through the yard and realized thought she was safe and then decided to follow it because that's what she felt like doing at that moment and then realized you know later just how silly that decision was yeah she she yeah she it started off with you know a, a, the frightening tornado in her yard but once it left the yard she just I guess was mesmerized and decided to get in her car and follow it and yes she did end up saying that that she regretted that decision to follow the tornado but as she was following it she saw the destruction it was causing um, she saw it you know, tearing through yards that's when she got on the phone with 911 to say okay we have a tornado causing some serious damage here the 911 operator couldn't understand what she was saying on the phone because she was so frantic talking so quickly and as she was on the phone with 911 she saw the the two vehicles uh get thrown into the field 
and that's something she says she wish she wishes she did not witness she the the one man uh who thankfully survived uh she says she got out and he he was trapped upside down in his vehicle people were trying to get to him he was honking his horn trying to call for help but people couldn't get to him because the hydro uh lines were down surrounding him and uh and then a kilometer away is where the the truck that the teens were in uh was thrown and that was uh she it w- it was hard for her to to des- describe what she saw there um as first responders arrived on scene and tried to perform CPR, but um, unfortunately, they died in front of her. 18-year-old uh, Carter Tilbury and 18-year-old Shayna Berneski, both from Melita. Maybe you can share with us before you go, maybe one thing that stuck out for you in your conversations with those in Melita about these uh, two young people. The thing that stuck out to me was how well-known they were and how well-liked. Um, when I went to, I'll use the example of the um, Carter who worked at a farm equipment dealership. When I went in there and I spoke to his manager, it was all smiles at first. Hi, how are you? As soon as we started talking about Carter, he broke down in tears. Um, he had to go to the, he went to the back room and just broke down in tears. It was these two young this young couple really had a major major impact in the community and now they're trying to figure out how they're going to uh safely uh honor their lives while um uh, adhering to COVID-19 social distancing guidelines yeah he had just graduated a year ago she graduated this past spring young lives taken far too soon and in in really an unspeakable way thank you for your time joe thanks guys Global's Joe Scarpelli joining us uh, this morning. Difficult stories to cover, Loren. When there's loss of property, it's one thing, but when there's loss of life in a tragedy like this, it takes it to an entirely different level. I, I know you've been there yourself. Uh, it- it's got to be difficult. I didn't want to ask Joe. I could tell he was sort of having a little bit of an emotional moment there and recounting uh, that for us. But Tell us how difficult that can be when you're in the moment, when you're in the middle of it. Yes, you're doing your job, but these are human beings after all. Well, you're always so grateful that people are even willing to speak with you in that moment because right. you can only imagine if someone rolled up on your in your town or your community or your street after something like that has happened and you're being asked those questions. You're grateful for it because you want to honor the lives of these two people. And so you want to hear from people who knew and love them. You want to learn from it. What can we learn from this? How can we help other people understand? Uh, he mentioned that the the eyewitness who saw what unfolded and how she wishes she had never followed that tornado just because of her. So now she's touched in a different way in the sense of what she'll feel in terms of the traumatic impact of watching that all unfold. And and then more than anything, I think for all of us, tornadoes are really something that we were so fascinated by. And I think it's really easy to say, oh, wow, that's crazy. Like, look at that video. Man, at the end of the day, nobody would want to be caught up in that ever And uh, for the two teens who lost their lives and for their family and friends that are mourning them, our thoughts are with you. Yeah, we send out all our our, uh, thoughts and prayers to those in Melita and Verdon, all points in between remembering those young people today. Less than eight hours away from finding out if the Winnipeg Jets will in fact earn via lottery the first overall draft choice in the 20. 20 NHL 
entry draft. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb, joined by another M, Murat Atesh of The Athletic. Good morning, Murat. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. We, we decided that we were going to call this segment Mathing with Mackling, McNabb, and Murat. <laughs> I love it. I have time for that. Mathing being, you know, the appropriate word here. Our grammar's so well this morning. Well, it is mathing. And it was actually Murat who came up with that terminology. Mathing, yeah, because there's a little bit of math involved. And it's pretty simple. Anybody can divide uh, 100 by 8 and get 12.5. But is there more to it than uh, the Jets' 1 in 8 chances of getting uh, the first overall pick, Murat? Well, the lottery win, first and foremost, would be the big prize at the end of the day if the 1-8, in eight, the 12.5% kicks in for Winnipeg. But there is one other scenario where the Jets pick does get better from 10th, which is where it's slated to be. It's also 12.5%. It's also 1-8. in eight, And that's if the Minnesota Wild, who not too many people would be upset if they won the lottery. If they win, um, Winnipeg's pick will slide up from 10th to 9th. So the worst the Jets can be is 10th overall at the end of today. It could go as high as nine, could go as high as one, depending on how the lottery balls fall. Did we not go through some of this in June? Like, it feels like it's almost deja vu. We didn't quite get there, but we did have a partial lottery, did we not, a few months ago, for those who might be confused by this process? Yeah, exactly. It is a confusing, convoluted process this year. Typically, the draft lottery happens one time and one time only. But the NHL wanted to give some odds to the teams that lost in the qualifying round, just like Winnipeg did last week. They didn't want it just to be those bottom seven teams to have an option of uh, finishing atop the draft lottery standings. So uh, they came up with this convoluted two-step system tonight. At uh, 5 p.m. Central, Winnipeg time, it's part two of two. By the end of the day, we'll know 100% what the order is going to be. So, Murat, shouldn't this just be the Jets pick anyway? Because uh, my belief and the belief of many experts was that it was, in fact, the Jets ball in the first version of this, the first go around, uh, was that it was, in fact, the Jets, uh, quote unquote, ball or their position in the standings that made it uh, that made all these uh, eight teams eligible for the first overall pick. Well, that's actually absolutely the truth, right? Because. When the NHL decided to go about this two-step system, they came up with the idea that, okay, we don't know who the teams that lose the qualifying round are going to be quite yet, so let's create these placeholder teams, and we'll give them different odds as if they were you know, the 10th worst team, the 11th worst team, the 12th worst team, etc. And of course, like you say, it was Winnipeg's slot that won the original lottery mm. to make this placeholder, so... Could lightning strike twice for Winnipeg? Could it actually happen? Or uh, is that just going to be an interesting little statistic that we file away and the Winnipeg Jets fans lament for the rest of time? Well, we'll find out, won't we? There's obviously the player. This is about getting the right player for your team. In some years, that's about picking and choosing. This year, no matter who gets to top spot, I think it's fair to say everyone's going wanting the same guy. So tell us a little bit. About, I'm not even going to attempt the name. Kelly Moore was doing it very well this morning. I will not. Who are we talking about that everyone's coveting? Yeah, it's, it is clear-cut this year. Uh, Alexi Lafreniere, who plays out of Rimouski in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, is uh, far and away the consensus pick at number one overall. Uh, he's a left wing. He played some center in his youth, but he's a left wing who has scored better than two points per game in juniors. Uh, in talking to executives and reading uh, other uh, scouts' posts, it seems like 
you know, this isn't Connor McDavid we're talking about. It's not Austin Matthews, but very much in that Taylor Hall, Nico Heischer range of really good first overall picks who might lead the league in scoring someday if everything goes well for him. And for Winnipeg to add that to a team that's already doing really well in terms of high-quality, talented forwards, they'd be overpowered in a lot of ways. And then there'd be the questions of balance and all those other things. But it would be a huge boost to Winnipeg's offense. So there are some teams that are, shall we say, least favorite Mm. to win this lottery today because, of course, Toronto just had Austin Matthews uh, with the first overall pick. I guess that's four drafts ago already, Murat? Oh, my! well, that's the Patrick Laine draft. Yeah, so 2016, that's right. Yeah, so four ago, and then Edmonton had that run of five and seven or five and eight years, so nobody wants to see them. And then, of course, the, the really the player who started this whole draft lottery business in the first place was Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were on the backside of Mario uh, Lemieux's career uh, in, the, in, the, in the dusk of his career, ended up with Sidney Crosby. So... Would it be fair to say that it's those three teams most fans across the league don't want to see get this pick? Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, I absolutely appreciate the same reasoning. So that's three out of eight teams who could win the lottery and end up picking number one overall. And three of eight teams who I'm sure fans across the league other than in those cities would just be like this again you know what what did these cities ever do meanwhile winnipeg has to go through the season that it just had um you know if you're if you're trying to make the karmic argument for things with all the injuries and absences and the the tribulations that winnipeg went through i i think that jets fans will feel that it's much more their pick uh than a team with austin matthews or Connor mcdavid or Sidney crosby on it we, of course, called this a bit convoluted because COVID's entered into the equation here as, as they figured out how to do the draft this year. But I have to say, personally, perhaps it's just because I started watching it more carefully after 2016, but it is kind of exciting the way they do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fun is really, I think, what the purpose of it is. And one of the reasons for the two-step lottery was that the NHL wanted to have those bottom seven teams to have something to look forward to uh, by running the initial lottery in June. Now we have this little bit of news in between rounds as the league gets ready to transition from the play-in round to the playoffs. And um, it's Every little bit of news or excitement or this uncertainty, you know, fans in eight different cities today are, are, have woken up excited or are, are excited about the possibility of drafting Alexi Lafreniere. Um, every little bit of that during the time in the sports media climate as it is, is good for the league and it's good for fans to have things to chew on like this. So I'm looking at the draft board as it sits right now in Ottawa, holding down the third spot as well as the fifth spot some conversation in your favorite world uh, from time to time or at twitter that if the jets do secure that first overall pick maybe it would be an opportunity for them to move on from lafreniere and uh, perhaps take ottawa's third and fifth picks how do you feel about that possibility if we can dream a little bit well, most of the time when I see things like this, I am 100% in the take the best player possible and don't try to galaxy brain or overthink it. And a lot of the time, um, if you have a, a Connor McDavid or something to that effect, well, that makes it that an easy decision. I've been curious about this exact same trade. So I've started reaching out to some of draft analytics folks who look at what is the expected value at, at each of the first pick and then the third and the fifth, which Ottawa has? 
who are the players likely to be there. And one of the things that I was told is that Quinton Byfield, um, a guy who is 17 years old, almost a full year younger than Alexi Lafreniere is, uh, just by the quirks of the timing of the draft eligibility for, for ages, um, is almost the player Lafreniere is at this stage of the game, is, is a, almost a year younger. And there's a thought in some circles that, if he's around at number three, the idea of number three and five from Ottawa would be quite the coup for anyone trading down from number one because he might be as good as Lafreniere in the long run, a little bit of a gamble, but certainly adding all kinds of value. And if you're a team like Winnipeg, who probably thinks that they've got the skilled winger quotient down and Quinton Byfield as a center and all these other things start to kind of click for you, it would be worth exploring at the very least. Murat, I think we're going to have plenty of things to speak about and discuss over this summer as uh, the summer of discontent perhaps in Winnipeg uh, began uh, last Thursday as uh, the Jets fell to the Calgary Flames. We didn't have time to break that down, but I'm sure we'll have lots of time to discuss where the Jets go from here. Thanks for this insight and look ahead. uh, Five o'clock today on uh, Sportsnet, who gets the first overall draft choice? Will it be the Winnipeg Jets? Uh, Only time will tell. Thanks for this uh, as always. Hey, thank you for having me. Murat Atash, uh, follow his tremendous work on The Athletic. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K, WPG. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.